morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 15. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one off of the tables that are around the room. We'll be on page 770 in those Bibles. And so if you want to grab one of those and open up to page 770, but we're going to be in Acts 15 this morning. Um, around three years ago, around three years ago, I did something that I couldn't believe I was doing. It's about three years ago around this time, I was sitting in an office of a jeweler buying an engagement ring. And after uh, being, being several years out of college and living in a, a sort of single life, a sort of bachelor's kind of life, I couldn't believe that I was in a situation where I was going to ask someone to marry me. And so as I bought this ring from this jeweler and as I walked out of the office with it in my hands, this ring that I designed for this woman that I loved, I realized that I was about to enter into one of the most terrifying seasons of my life. I had to plan an engagement. I had the ring and now I had to do something where I had to go and I had to plan something that was going to be a story that was going to be told for the rest of our lives. And the reason why it was so terrifying is, is not because I didn't love Danielle and not because, you know, the things that, that we were pursuing um, in our lives weren't, weren't pure, but I was terrified because I had no idea where to start as far as planning an engagement goes. And so I don't know if you've seen Instagram or social media lately, but when it comes to planning an engagement, there are a lot of hoops you have to jump through these days to make it perfect, right? You have to have string lights and pergolas and perfectly calligraphied chevrons hanging that says the future Mr. and Mrs. And, and that was just all kind of stuff that was just sort of out there. And I was like, where in the world do I start? And so I admit falling into this trap, I spent way too much time on Pinterest um, but my intentions for that were pure. I wanted this to be such a memorable moment for, for Danielle and for me to show her how much I cared for her. And I wanted to show her that, man, I love you so much. But I'll admit that my mind in planning for this engagement got a little lost in the details. Let me explain how I made something so simple, incredibly difficult on myself. So I planned our engage to propose to Danielle our engagement to be done on my birthday. My biggest fear was that Danielle was going to find out. So I thought the ultimate way to throw her off was to do so on my birthday. And so what I had planned was, was that we were going to do what I wanted to do that day. Sounds really, really selfish, but she was going to get the prize. She was going to get the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. So what I chose to do was to play golf. And so uh, we were going to go out to the golf course and I was going to play 18 holes with her riding in the cart. And we were going to talk and it was going to be great for us to talk about life and goals and all kinds of different things. And we're going to get to the 18th hole and I was going to get down on one knee on the tee box and I was going to propose to her and I was going to have a friend hiding and taking pictures. And we're going to drive up the 18th fairway and we're going to get a chance to talk about sort of this monumental moment that just happened to get to talk about all these different things. And then we're going to have our families waiting at the clubhouse to uh, enjoy some libations and to be able to celebrate this moment. And then we were going to go to a friend's house where all of her friends would be waiting and we we're going to celebrate together. And so I had this all grand plan mapped out and then it started raining and I'm not talking about like, oh, this is going to be really cute. I'll get to propose in a rain jacket and it's just going to be a, a nuisance kind of rain. I'm talking about like monsoon, like second coming buckets and buckets of water kind of rain. 
And so Danielle and I are in the car. We're driving out to the golf course. She has no idea, obviously, that what I have going through my mind. I've carefully moved the ring from uh, the place I had it hidden into my pocket. We're in the car. We're driving out there. And I can only think at this point, Danielle thinks I'm crazy because I want to go play golf in this monsoon. And we pull into the golf course, and there's nobody there. And I walk into the office, and there's two guys. They're teenage guys that are working um, in this pro shop. And I look at them and say, I'd like to have a card. I'd like to play. (laughs) And they're like, sir, I don't know if you've seen outside. You obviously had to drive here somehow, but it's, it's raining really hard. We've actually closed the course. And so I said, will you call your manager for me, please? (laughs) And so the manager got on the phone and, and he talked to these guys and he was like, look, if if he wants to play, it's his funeral. And I said, no, sir, it's an engagement. It's not a funeral. It's an engagement that I've worked so hard on planning. And so they they let us go. They they let us go. We got into the cart and um, it it maybe stopped a little bit. But as soon as we started driving down the first fairway, it started pouring again. Danielle and I were soaked to the bone and we sort of made the rounds around the first hole and I just started crying. And I can't imagine because Daniel has no idea what's going on. She just thinks this guy is nuts. Like he just wants to play golf so bad on his birthday. But I was so incredibly frustrated. And so I'm trying to like text people and like get people and moved in different places. And I just sent everybody to the house that we were going to eventually end up at. And I was like, I'm going to try to figure this out on my own. And so we get back in the car and I rehide the ring in my golf bag and I'm thinking on the way home and it was awkwardly silent is the way I remember it driving home. And I was thinking as we were pulling into this driveway of this house where I was living at the time, it was this mother-in-law suite of this home that uh, great friends of my grandparents were letting me stay in as a bachelor. It was gonna be the place where I had hoped that Daniel and I were gonna start, our family were gonna start living there when we got married And I was thinking about all the the great experiences that Danielle and I had had in this city, but also in that home, moments where Danielle would come up and we would cook meals together, a time when we, uh, it was snowing and Danielle drove through the snow to come up and see me because she wanted uh, to come up and, and be with me while it was snowing. And I just was thinking about all these moments and thinking about how difficult I had made this on myself with something so incredibly and beautifully simple. And so I opened up the back hatch of my SUV and I pulled the ring out of my golf bag and I got one down on one knee in the driveway of that home and I proposed to Danielle. And we had no photographer. We have one selfie from that day. We don't have the perfect Instagram photo. But it was this beautiful, simple moment. And a lot of times when I think back on that moment uh, over these past two years that we've been married, I cringe because I think I didn't come up with this perfect plan and I didn't execute it perfectly. But But I think about that moment now as I was reflecting this week on this story and I just think I made something so difficult that is so incredibly and beautifully simple. Every day when school is in session, I teach seventh and eighth graders and seventh and eighth graders, they come in and out of my classroom and as they grow in knowledge at our school, I also get to watch as they grow and shape their identity. Often in my class at the beginning of the year, I express to them how important this season of life is for them as they begin to mold and shape who they are. And I I begin with them by telling them that during this season, seventh and eighth grade, you're gonna begin to answer three big questions. Who are you? What makes you unique? And where do you belong? 
And most often the last question becomes the most difficult. Where do I belong? Most, my most heartbreaking moments at school are when I see students who are struggling to belong, not because of a lack of desire or effort, but because someone else is making it difficult for them. And my most heart-wrenching part of it is that, is that those kids that are making it difficult for these other students to feel like they belong, they inside themselves, all students in our school, they all have that same desire, this longing to be known and to feel a part of something. Yet they've been callous because they believe that there are certain groups and certain bodies that, that people should be excluded and included to depending on their social status or their race or how cool they are or what kind of phone they have or how they dress. Yet instead of recognizing this desire in all of them, they push others away. Man, I, 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 how I wish this was just a middle school problem. But you and I know that it isn't. All of us, even as adults, have been in situations where we made something that's so simple, something that's so beautiful, something that's so innate, difficult for other people. Today, my prayer is that through this story and acts that we're gonna be challenged to open ourselves up and weed out some of the habits and tendencies that keep outsiders away from our church and away from relationships with men and women of faith. We're gonna to see today in our story in Acts chapter 15 that there are some people within this Jewish community that we've been studying in the book of Acts, this community that's being radically changed and transformed by the story of Jesus. There are some people in this community that wanna make it really difficult for outsiders to become a part of this new movement. And so we're gonna begin in Acts chapter 15 and verse one. It says this, it says, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. In other words, if you have not participated in these rituals, that this Jewish community finds sacred, then you cannot be a part of our group. Talk about making it difficult. Can you imagine what the conversation for guys like Peter and Barnabas would be walking up to these Gentiles who want so badly to be followers of Jesus and saying, look, you, you believe and you've been baptized, but there's one other thing we, we need you to do. And I don't, if you don't know what circumcision is, circumcision is the removal of a, uh, the foreskin of a penis. And I feel uncomfortable ground saying penis in front of you because if you listen to Dave's sermon last week, he called it a wiener. So um, I'm not kidding. The pastor, head pastor of our church called it a wiener in his sermon last week. And so can you imagine what it would be like for Peter and Barnabas to stand before these men in this community of Gentiles who want to be followers of Jesus and say, this is what you have to do in order to be a part? Talk about making it difficult. It wasn't just about the physical act of circumcision. To the Jewish people in this community, circumcision was a sacred thing because it had been instructed to them by God. And it was connected to one of their, uh, one of their patriarchs. It was connected to Abraham, one of their founding fathers, one of the people that they looked up to. They recited his name that we worship the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so it was connected deeply to Abraham. And the story of Abraham in a nutshell is that Abraham and his wife could not have children. And so God promised to make Abraham. It was the first covenant ever made in the Bible outside of Noah and the, and the, where someone else was required to do something. In the covenant with Noah, Noah was just required to be, and God said, I'm never gonna flood the earth again. But the covenant with Abraham was like, look, I promise I'm gonna make you into a great nation, but you're gonna have to do some things for me. 
You're gonna have to instruct and teach your family and your people to follow me all of their days. And as a sign, as you trusting me, not only with, with your life, but with something that you held so sacred, which is your fertility, I'm gonna ask you to, to do a physical thing with your body to show your commitment to me. And so God asked for all of those males in Abraham's family to be circumcised, to entrust to God the fertility of their families. It was a physical sign of an inward emotion or inward feeling, an inward belief in the God of Israel. Circumcision was a mark for these people. It was to say that I belong to God, that I belong to God. And what these people, these Jewish people who are so ingrained in this culture don't realize is there's a movement that's going on in their midst where Jesus has come and he's taken all of those rituals and customs and he's made them new. He's entered this this group of people into a new covenant with him where they no longer need these physical signs but instead they need this belief in him and the seal or the physical sign that he's put upon them is the Holy Spirit. And that's what we've been reading about in Acts is the power of the Holy Spirit coming into the church and setting them out and giving them a purpose and giving them power. It's Jesus who now sets them apart, not a physical sign in their body, but it's the the embodiment of Jesus in their heart and in their lives that sets them apart. And so we go on in Acts chapter 15 and verse two, it says this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way as they, and they, as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers, here we go again, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So beyond circumcision, in order to fully understand this text, we have to understand the law of Moses. The law of Moses, which is often sometimes in scripture just called the law or it's called the Torah. And the main point of these laws that they're talking about, it began with the 10 commandments. Some, some of which you're probably very familiar with. Do not steal, do not murder, do not lie. Have no other gods before me. And so it began with these 10 laws that God gave to the Israelites as they came out of slavery in Egypt in the book of Exodus. And there was this group of people wandering in the desert and God says, I'm giving you these laws as a guideline so that you might have a relationship with me and you might live in harmony with each other. If you look at the Ten Commandments themselves, the first four are about our relationship with God and the last six are about our relationships with other people. And so God gave them these laws, not as a ruler sitting on a throne wanting to control this body of people, but he gave them these laws to shape and to mold and to transform how they interacted with God and with each other. And as the people continued on their journey, as they wandered through the desert, as they reached the promised land, as they entered into these relationships with these other nations around them, God continued to meet them in their troubles and in their disobedience. And he began to give them new laws and new boundaries and new guidelines in order to transform their heart. And if you read from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, at the end of Deuteronomy, we have 613 laws that God has given to the people throughout this story of their journey to the promised land. And those 613 laws were the laws of Moses. And those are the laws that these people that are named in Acts 15, the Pharisees, they were holding the people to all of these laws as ridiculous and as antiquated as they might be. 
not thinking about how the ramifications of Jesus' story affected how we see and interpret those laws. Ultimately, God had three purposes for these laws that really Jesus fulfilled, that Jesus showed us the true heart of. Number one, God, had wanted, God wanted to protect his people from relational and physical heartache and hardship. He wanted to protect them from, from doing things. So think about these laws that he wanted them to not murder. And the reason was because he didn't want his people being killed. He didn't want us to experience physical hardship. But he also said things like, do not lie. And do not lie isn't about a physical consequence, but rather it's about a relational consequence, right? He didn't want people lying to each other because that breaks relational bonds. It, it separates people. It moves people out. It excludes people. And so God was all about the, the physical and the relational safety of his people. And second, he wanted the lives of the people to be transformed by these boundaries. God wanted these laws to be a process through which the Israelites would turn their hearts to each other and most importantly to God. Which brings us to the third reason, and the most important is that God wanted to transform his people through these laws to show all the other nations around them who God really is. But for the Israelites, what these laws became were empty rituals, ways to get out of jail, ways to get out of sin, ways to appease God so they could go about living life how they wanted to live it. And so about halfway through the Old Testament, God begins to address this problem. He says, look, there's going to be a Messiah, a king who's going to come one day, and he's going to interpret these laws for you, and he's going to bring all people to himself, and he's going to bring peace to the earth. And Isaiah and all the prophets speak about this as well. And so Jesus comes, and he begins to interpret these laws. We read about this in the Sermon on the Mount, about Jesus interpreting these laws. He says, you have heard it said, do not murder. And the Jews' ears would have perked up because they have heard these laws all of their lives. And Jesus says, I tell you, don't be angry with your brother. See, it wasn't about not murdering because Jonathan, I don't know if it's difficult for you, but I imagine it's not difficult for you to murder someone, right? It's, it's not difficult for you not murder someone. That's what I meant. I knew I was gonna get twisted up there. It's not difficult for you to not murder someone, okay? It's easy for you to walk around in this world and to not kill somebody. That's an easy box to check, but I'm sure it's much difficult for you being in a relationship with you to, to not be angry at somebody, it's much more difficult. It's, it's, it's much harder. And when we allow that to be a law that transform our lives to not allow ourselves to be angry, we enter into relationships with people and our relationships are sustained because we don't allow anger to influence and break them apart. It's all about relational security. It's all about relational purity. It's all about how we treat each other. That's what Jesus is trying to get at. It's not just about checking the box. It's about being transformed in the way that you treat other people. And so Jesus says, I want your hearts to be transformed. That was the purpose of God's laws. And so Jesus institutes a new way. He says, look, of the 613 laws, let's just focus on two of them. He says, if you do these two things, all the other laws, all 613 of them will fall into place. He says, I want you to love God and I want you to love other people. And if you keep those two commandments, all the other ones will fall into place. And that speech falls on deaf ears in the Jewish community and what they do instead is they continue, to, they continue to follow these rituals and these laws and they continue to check those boxes and that's how they determine whether people are in or out. And so Peter stands up and he addresses this question, this, this debate of what determines people are in or out. He says in verse six, the apostles and the elders met to consider this question and after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, brothers, 
You know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. And he did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we, neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The two words that it would have perked up these Jewish brothers are the words by faith, not by ritual, not by the keeping of the law, not by following the Torah, but by faith that this is what saves us. It's not any uh, obedience to any ritual. It's nothing that's empty. It's not something that we do, but it's rather something that God did, that by faith in what God did, we are saved. What Peter is trying to express is that for so long, the chosen people of God found their identity in the pursuit of ritual purity a process that God gave them for the purpose of transforming their hearts. Yet instead of producing faith, it has produced a cycle of failure and dependency, not on God, but on the rituals themselves. And what Peter is laying before them is to consider the heart-knowing, spirit-giving God has made a way for all people to come to him, not by jumping through some hoops or participating in empty sacraments, but being transformed by renewing or a building of their faith. He even goes so far to call the laws of Moses a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Peter, in this passionate speech before the people, talking about who we're gonna let in and who we're gonna keep out, he calls these laws a yoke. I think it's a reference to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11. And in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, "'Come, all you who are weary and burdened, "'and I will give you rest.'" Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Peter looks upon what's going on with these Jews and these Gentiles and he's saying, you've been putting a yoke upon them that's not easy. It's a burden that's not light. It's a burden that's keeping them from participating in the life that God has called them to. And so he calls it this oppressive yoke. And, and when I think about this, this, what Jesus wanted, what ultimately what Jesus wanted in Matthew chapter 11 was he wanted us to invite these people into a relationship with God that wasn't burdensome, that didn't require them to jump through hoops, but rather invited them into this holy, holy relationship with God. I'm reminded because of the words in Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 that before we are called to throw away sin, before we're called to participate in the sacraments of baptism or communion or worship, before we're called to be holy, we're simply called to come. To come as we are. And for those of us who are comfortable sitting as a part of this global community called the church, as a community of people who believe in the power of Jesus, do we recognize that in the world there is a pain that exists in the lives of people where the first thing that they've been presented as the message of Jesus is not an invitation to come, but is an invitation to change on the spot or you don't fit in? Are we willing to recognize some of the ways that, that we as the church have put up barriers to entry for people who desperately need the healing rest that Jesus provides. 
I remember being in college studying theology and I walked into a class one day and I can't remember the professor, but the professor walked up to the whiteboard and he put three words on the board. The words were believe, behave, and belong. And the whole class, all we did was sit and reflect on our church experience and talk about and think about how have we as a church in your experience ordered those three words for people who are trying to come into a relationship with people inside of the church? Do we require non-believers, people who are outside of our community to believe first and then behave and then finally they belong? Or should these words, the way that we approach outsiders of the church, should these words be reordered? And so we spent the whole class time talking about these three words. And they're words that paint with broad strokes. And we can sit up here and we can talk about what it means to behave. And we can talk about what it is and what they need to believe. But the thing that that class, I I remember we could definitely all agree on is that belong should come first because that's what Jesus did. When you read through the stories in the gospel, Jesus allowed people to belong far before they believed in who he was. We see this with the adulterous woman where Jesus has this relationship with her. It's it's a very short story, but we know that Jesus meets her on a level that no one else was willing to meet her. We see this with the story of Zacchaeus where he calls him down for the tree and he goes to eat dinner with him. That God calls people God calls people into a loving relationship with him far before he requires anything of them. It was from belonging and within the context of relationship that Jesus lovingly challenged those who wanted life free of the brokenness of sin and shame to believe in his name and believe in such a way that made much of the mercy and grace of God. It was within the context of a relationship that God called or Jesus called people to new things two new beliefs, two new behaviors. And that's why we also have to listen to the voice of James in Acts chapter 15, picking back up in verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose the people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. That is written, I will, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, James says, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And I think in that moment, Peter's like, amen, amen. But James goes on, and this is important. We have to recognize James' theology as well. He says, instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it is read on the synagogues in every Sabbath. So Peter's up there and he's making this charge. We just need to throw out the law of Moses and we just need to welcome people in. And James is like, wait a minute. And this speaks so beautifully into the diversity of theology that existed even within the apostles. Even within our church today, there are people that believe all kinds of different things about the story of Jesus and how we're supposed to interpret the scriptures. And even James and Peter, they didn't see things quite the same. 
And what James says is a beautiful reminder. He says, look, I agree. People need to belong first. But there are guidelines that are spoken from the very mouth of God that have been given to us to help us be transformed, to put us in the best possible place to be transformed people. And those are guidelines that we should keep, that we should hold people to, that we should pronounce as the best possible way. And so it's this tension that exists in this passage that I think that we desperately need to lean into and live into. That yes, we absolutely have to invite people to belong in our communities, in our homes. And it may take years of belonging before we ever get to a conversation about believing. But with our own lives, for those of us who do believe, we have to follow the guidelines that God has set before us because that is how we show the people who God is and why choosing a life with him is the very best possible option for everyone. When we choose a life that is free from sin, that follows God's guidelines, we accomplish what God wanted to accomplish with the law of Moses in the Old Testament was for the nation of Israel to be example to all the other nations. And when we follow the laws because we have chosen to believe, then we ascribe to all these laws. When we do that, we show all the other people, this is what a life truly enamored with the life and following the life and dedicated to the life of Jesus truly looks like. So in light of all of this, and in light of this theological tension, and in light of this, this calling to invite outsiders in, I wanna talk about two things as we wrap up today. Two things, ways that maybe we make it difficult for other people to come in. And this is not gonna be anything that's theologically revolutionary for you. In fact, I want you to live in those tensions and think about that in your own time. But rather, these are things that I think we can all agree on, that if we will make these changes in the ways that we not only do things in here, but we, the way that we have conversations and act in our community, there will be people who are outsiders to the kingdom of God that desperately want to get in if we do these things. And so the first thing that, that I believe that we do is often we make it difficult for people to see what we are for as the church because we spend so much time talking about what we're against. So often, particularly on social media, Christianity is condensed into a list of things that our community is against. Premarital sex, abortion, homosexuality, drinking, swearing, the list goes on and on. And often what I believe is that th those lists, condensing the Christian story, the gospel into a list of things that we're against is incredibly dangerous because it doesn't speak into the complexity and the relational nature of, of the gospel story. Is that what Jesus did is he wasn't putting out blanket condemnations over the people, but he's inviting them to participate in a story that would radically change the way that they lived. And there's a big difference in those two things. And so instead of making lists about things that we're against, why don't we make lists and proclaim the things that we're for, that we're for goodness and we're for kindness and we're for community and we're for grace and we're for mercy and we're for salvation. We're for calling people into something that they can be surprised by, how life-giving it is. It never ceases to amaze me when I interact with people who are outside of the community of God how amazed they are when they run into somebody who don't meet the different criteria that they've painted Christianity with in their head. When they meet someone that's not bigoted, when they meet someone that's not condemning, when they meet someone that's not judgmental, 
When they meet someone that's living their life as a normal person and trying to work through things and work things out in their own life. When they meet someone that's authentic and transparent. You've heard Brandon up here talk about a mission trip that he took to Panama City Beach when he was in college. And I went on the second year of that trip. And it sounds so weird to talk about going on a mission trip. And I think the way that Brandon has explained it is so beautiful is that we were a group of guys that wanted to go and learn how to live among outsiders, people that didn't feel included in the kingdom of God. We wanted to go and we wanted to try to experience what life was like in their world. It was far more about transforming us than it was about transforming other people. But when you go with the spirit of anticipation that God's gonna show up and do something in your own art, often it happens to other people too. And it would be amazing that we would be sitting on the beach playing volleyball with kids on spring break And we'd be just having these normal conversations that you would have when you meet somebody new on vacation. And we would tell them where we go to school and what we were studying and who we were and what we were about, not in a way that was trying to convert them, but that was a way to just to say, this is who I am. And they would just be amazed. They would be blown away at meeting someone who believed in Jesus that wasn't any of those things that I just listed. And those are the experiences that I carry with me. That I say, I wanna be more like that when I'm here where people are blown away by the things that I'm for, not by the things that I'm against. The second thing that I think that we do, and this is one that I'm incredibly passionate about, and I think it comes from my times with students, but we make it difficult sometimes to find the joy in following Christ. Don't get me wrong, we need to prioritize time in the word, and we need to prioritize time in prayer, and we need to prioritize time spent in worship. But guys, sometimes we need to prioritize having fun having fun in the name of the Lord, not in some cheesy cookie cutter Christian kind of way, but just recognizing that when we have fun, when we're enjoying things like family and the beach and roller coasters and Christmas lights and whatever you love, recognizing that because we draw breath and because we're standing in front of the Eiffel Tower, that in that moment, the fun and joy that we're having is not by coincidence. It's because God has given you breath that day. It's because God has set you in that place. God's given you the ability to travel to those places, to see those things, to experience that. That that joy that's within you, that's coming out in happiness, seeing whatever it is that you're seeing, it comes from a place of holiness. I have this exercise that I do with my seventh and eighth graders that I love because it pushes their boundaries to think about this. I make them do a list of things that they're thankful for, things that God has blessed them with, things that they're thankful for. And And I I give them five minutes and they start and they come up with the same list that everybody else in here would come up with. House, food, dog, cat, mom, dad, all that. And then I make them go for another five minutes and another five minutes and another five minutes until they have exhausted themselves coming up with things that they're thankful for. Boxed mac and cheese. The smile that the lunch lady gives you. I mean, like they come up with the stuff that, I'm like, that's the real stuff. That's the good stuff. When we get down and we see God's blessing in all of those small things, that sets us apart from other people who take those things for granted. It enriches our life to see God in the small and minute places. And when we do that, it invites other people to experience God in those ways as well. What I wanna challenge you to do is to create community around things that you enjoy and see the Lord working in those experiences just as powerfully as he does when the text is open before you or when you're deep in prayer. Allow yourself to, to invite people into your moments of great happiness. 
Invite your neighbors down the street instead of your friends at church on vacation with you and let them experience you at your happiest moments. Invite people over for a game night so that they can experience what community looks like, not maybe with your Bibles open, but with your hearts open to say, here's who I am and here's the joy I find in community and in board games, if that's your thing. And saying, I see the Lord in this moment just as much as I see him when I have my Bible open or I'm spending time in prayer. So often I think we believe that inviting others into a relationship with Jesus means beginning with things that are heavy. The gravity of salvation, the brevity of life, the consequences of sin. And sometimes that's exactly how it begins. Sometimes we meet people in their darkest moments, in their moments of greatest need. And I don't wanna throw those moments out because they're pure and they're holy and God has put you in those places for a time and a reason. But sometimes I think inviting people into the story of Jesus begins with things that are light. Sharing stories around a home-cooked meal, dancing at a wedding when the perfect sun comes on, nerding out with your neighbors over your favorite novel or board game or science fiction series. That's the beautiful, beautifully simple nature of Jesus' desire for our lives. He says in John chapter 10 and verse 10, these are the words of Jesus. I have come so that they may have life and life to the full. May we be a people that point to that beautifully simple challenge to live in the fullness of life. And may we be a people that stop trying to make it difficult for people to come into a relationship with Jesus. I'm gonna invite us to participate in communion in just a second. What I want you to, to think about as you participate in communion, communion are those people that God is calling you to invite into a relationship. Listen, we are participants in a story that is living. It is continuing to be written and it is rooted in the gospel. It's a, a foundation that we've built on that will never be compromised. That you and I, because we believe in Jesus, because we're here in this place, we're building our lives on a foundation that we won't compromise. We won't compromise that Jesus is Lord, that his grace and love abounds, that his resurrection brought hope and purpose into our lives, and that we're called to be his hands and feet. That's something that we won't compromise as the body of Christ, as the people in believe in God's story. That's something that we won't compromise. However, the ways that people have built upon that foundation might not look like the way that we've built upon that foundation. So we may be stepping out of our comfort zone. I wanna challenge you to step out of your comfort zone to see the world differently, to look upon your neighbor who maybe experiences God in a different way with you, who's building their life on that foundation and learn from them. Because sometimes when we're seeking out those who are outside of our community, the best thing that we can do is learn to experience God in a number of ways so that we encounter people who are living a certain lifestyle. We can then go to them and speak the truth and love to them. And we can know that, hey, I'm coming from just this simple foundation that Jesus is Lord. And every time I take communion, that's what I think about. I think about this foundation that God has built my story upon. And I look out upon this room and I look at all the other people taking communion. And it's this beautiful moment in our church where we all say, we believe in the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus. And we believe that the blood of Jesus washes us clean. But I look around and there are so many of us in here. There are so many different stories that have been shaped in different ways by the story of Jesus. And I can't help but think, who else needs to be in here? 
allowing themselves to be shaped by this community of people. Not because we're requiring them to believe a specific thing or to do a specific thing because Jesus has invited them to come and to enter into a relationship with him. So may that be what we reflect on as we partake in communion today. Let me pray for us and then I'm gonna dismiss you to go to the tables. Lord, thank you so much for the gift that you've given to us. A foundation, a secure foundation of who we are in you because of what you've done. Not because of any hoops we've jumped through, not because of anything that we've done, but because something that you have done, that you sent your son Jesus here to die for us, to be buried and to raise again. God, we're so thankful for what you've done for us and your great mercy. God, may we think about that as we partake in communion and may we think about those people in our lives that we wanna invite to build their lives on such a foundation. And may we show people that that coming to know Jesus, to entering into that relationship, that building their lives on that foundation is not something that's difficult, but it's something that's beautifully, beautifully simple. God, we love you. Give us the words when we need them. Show us who you want us to, to talk with, to be in community with. Show us how to live according to your will and to your law because we have put ourselves under the lordship of Jesus. God, we need you. We need your light. We need your life. We need your joy. We need you to be with us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.